We didn't have the best environments. There weren't broadsheets, quality books at home. We had to make the best of what we had. My parents had given up everything. We stand on the shoulders of giants, but they were prisoners of hope. No one ever understands or appreciates the power of inclusion until they've experienced exclusion. Nothing for a cannon to light another cab. You've got to want to pick up that responsibility. You've got to want to help those who are coming off. When I was rough, unaware, crude, unsophisticated, underprepared, I found my mentors. They gave me the license to succeed. Let's change the game. And welcome to Everyday Leadership podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership and today's guest is someone who I highly look up to. He's broken a lot of barriers um, in a lot of ways when it comes to business. Um, he has accomplished so much. In fact, his resume is it's quite long, which is why I'm happy to be able to give him the, the honor and the privilege to see how he chooses to introduce himself. Because honestly, if I had gone through the amount of things that he's accomplished in the last 30 plus years, we'll be here for the whole episode. So, Renee, Absolute pleasure for being an Everyday Leadership Podcast. Can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Look, it's a real privilege to be here. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. I'm privileged and lucky and I never forget. The opportunity my parents gave, and we, we know this story, but it's worth revisiting it. My parents grew up in Gambia, born and bred in Gambia, West Africa. British colony. We had primary education. We had second education. We had no tertiary. No colleges, no universities. If you wanted to go to university, you either went to Dhaka in Senegal, same indigenous language, Wolof, but French, you had to learn French. Or you went to Sierra Leone, Ghana, Nigeria. Our sister nations, British colonies as well. My parents didn't want that for their children. They wanted to get them, give them the chance to get to university and come back to Gambia, help develop Gambia, live happily after. My parents gave up their middle class lives in Gambia, sold everything, and traveled to what was the mother country, and was still a colony. So they could come to London, unlike When they arrived in London, London was the most expensive city on the planet in those times, in the 60s. And it meant their life savings meant not a lock in London, meant access to not the best housing, which immediately condemned them to not the best school. And it looked like the overall plan was disappearing before their eyes. What we learned from that sacrifice culture was as children, we ran as fast as we could, we jumped as high as we could. And for many of us, our parents didn't give us too many other options. It was very fast. We didn't have the best environments. There weren't broadsheets, quality books at home. We had to make the best of what we had. And I was a lucky one amongst my siblings to get to university. And I was a lucky one to get into Marks and Spencer. But I remember in the early days, leaving my personality at reception at 7.30 in the morning, coming into my place of work and being the person the company will read. But did you know you had to do that? Or that's something that you learned? If you wanted to get on, you soon picked it up. If you didn't want to get on, it didn't matter. I needed to. I didn't want to, I needed to. Why, why did you have that need to get on? Like, why was it for you? Why were you so driven? My parents had given up everything. We stand on the shoulders of giants, but they were prisoners of hope. Up until then, they were prisoners of 
Had they made the right decision? Had they made the right investments? How tough was this going to be? Would we succeed? There were going to be no, no questions about it. I was going to succeed. Not for me, for Mama Pat. That's a far greater thing, a far more important petrol. And I was going to do what it took. And that meant leaving my personality reception at 7.30. At 6.30 I'm on my way home, pick up my personality. I dressed differently. I spoke differently. I even laughed differently. And at the time, you don't realise the sacrifices you're making, the price you're paying. But it was a stock choice. Continue to be who I was at home and go nowhere or try to succeed. Today the world has changed. It's not that harsh. Then, and I choose my words carefully, it was black and white. You fitted in or you didn't. When you, when you have people talk today around code switching, and the need to do exactly what you said of to to get into that environment, drive your way to the top, but you got something you got that I guess the background of your parents and the sacrifice they're giving kind of preparing you that you weren't willing to do whatever it took. And then you hear people in our generation now talking about, oh well that's cold switching. You can't do that. You have to be your authentic self. You have to show up. What do you say to that? Well it's quite easy. Because of us you've got the opportunity to have that choice. Remember that please. Because of the parents, because we did, because they achieved. And it's interesting because we have to be careful when we look back. There's far too much in this world. And there's far too much, we are nothing if we are not our history. Please forgive me, we are our future. It's the future that counts. History is not moving. History is not feeding us. History, history is important, the future is not. What we give today, what I said to you earlier that I'm in this current heat wave we've got in London, I had the benefit of sitting under a large tree with a few friends over the weekend. Listen to music, sharing some food, sharing a few drinks. It crossed our mind that it took a vision many, many years ago to plant the seeds for that tree. That doesn't come by chance. We're going to make the best of that purpose. Those who are brave enough to plant them, those who are brave enough to come here. Our parents were really brave. They were pioneers, but I'm not sure they got the return on their investment. We are responsible for that. And I want the next generation to be responsible for our reserve. If we're going to try a little harder, if we're going to try and create the path, if we're really going to be role models, then someone's going to come and capitalise upon the work we've done. I was standing in front of a group of 20-somethings, um, very young, Smart, bright, mainly black. And they were giving me a bit of a hard time about role models. And I put up a list of people that I know who were non-essential directors, chairs, etc., of companies. And there was not the unanimous applause I thought they might get. In fact, it was contradictory. There was hardly any applause. So I put up a, a list of people I know and know well who were, have done well, who are sitting on boards of companies. And one of them said to me, Rene, we were told these were the game changers. These were our role models. These are the people who inspire us. What well, we found in actual fact, they're not the game changers. They were changed by the game. They are not people we look up to. They don't open doors for us. They won't mentor us. They're not going to take a risk of helping us. 
that been changed by the dead. It hurts. But I've found myself not able to mock. I know them well. But I'll have to agree. There's, there's, a, there's a burning thread that we all have, which is to carry that baton. It costs nothing for a cannon to light another candle. But you've got to want to be there. You want to, you've got to want to pick up that responsibility. You've got to want to help those who are coming after And the thing that with me, what's really been interesting is um, I've been seeing how many mentors I've had. Of all races, of all ethnicities, of all faiths, of all backgrounds. Because that's the world I want them to live. Not the world I had to live, which is quite distinct, quite separate, quite stark. The world is changing. We need to change with that world. An amazing... So, as you say to me about career in that, I found out very early, in no uncertain terms, no one achieves their leadership potential without the intervention of a mentor. Mentors get quite decried these days by those who have had it a little easier to get. Mentors, mentoring is everything. I've been lucky to have two or three in my career who were astonishing. When I was really rough, uncut, inappropriate, unsuitable for just about anything, they helped me find a way. But then I've heard you say in the past, one of the things that you were told when you started out was you would do well to have a black male mentor and none existed. Not only none existed, I was told that if you're really going to thrive, you need a mentor who's like you and has, and has been on the journey you want to go. I'm of that vintage that there weren't any black executives when I was coming through. There were no black board directors. And um, way back in the day, I was the first black board director, which was so long ago I can hardly remember it. But I do remember meeting three of my very good friends, black friends. We decided that at the time that black men didn't really support each other the way they could. So we're going to change it. We're pushing our careers, we're working different parts of our careers, and there was me, Ray, Rich, and Fitzroy. I was on the board of IPC magazines at the time. We had the tallest building south of the river, King's Reach Tower. And on the twin I thought we had an entertainment suite for all of us directors. So once a month, we'd meet up there, our cordoned old chef and cook, and we would celebrate each other, support each other, challenge each other, be there for each other. And we'd look out all over London, the twin and the four of us would just be, if someone had an appointment, a promotion, something, we would celebrate it. We would send each other handwritten cards. We would make a point that someone's there for you, someone cares. Anyway, one day it was announced the BT had recruited and appointed an amazing American managing director to come over to lead one of their big businesses. His name was Bruce Bond. We read up everything about Bruce Bond. This was the hero we've been missing. This guy's coming in to be managing director. We need to meet this guy. And would you believe his announced at the Royal Festival Hall, he was coming to do a bit of a tour. I got four front row seats for me, Richard, Ray, and Fitzroy. We weren't going to miss a minute. We, we turned up an hour early. We are not missing this. This is the real deal. The finished article. He came on, he was polished, he was smooth, he was strategic, he was a storyteller. He, he had the audience in the palm of his hand. It was amazing. I got back to my office and I called in my BT account manager, ran the account full of IPC magazines. And we had a, we had the largest consumer magazines business in you know, over 100 magazines. From Marie Claire to Country Life to Loaded, we had the lot. I called him and I said to him, I need to meet Bruce. Arrange for me to meet Bruce. Leave with me, Renee. Name was Phil. Off he went. Did the interview for three minutes. Called Phil. He's a feral. No, leave with 
three weeks later, Phil turns up in my office. Says, um, um, I met with Bruce. I did tell him about it. I put everything he took. But he asked me some pretty direct questions. So what were the questions? Said, um, how much is Relay's firm? What revenues do they bring to BT? And where does it rank? I was in his top 30 clients. He said, look, give a, give Mr. Relay for me. I'd love to meet him. I'm very busy at the moment. When he gets to spending into the top 30, I will meet him. Well, to our metrics session. Phil was backing out the office when he was telling me. <laughs> And I listened to this, and I remember it hit me like a hammer in the head. Hey, where does your due care? Where is your helping those that come after you? Where is... I called the guys. We'd met that night, before I was, up at Kingsreach Town. What the hell is this man playing? But then it dawned on us. What did he really owe me? Who was I to him? He's an American. Yes, he's black. Was he wrong to say he's coming to do the best commercial job that he can? Was he wrong to be entirely focused on being the best that he could be? Was it wrong that he didn't have the time for me? We learned about a thousand lessons. I grew up that. No one owes you anything. But we hope, we pray, we care enough to care. It matters enough to care. But it's not everyone's responsibility. Well, how do you then, when I listen to you say that, I completely agree it's not everyone's responsibility. But if you want to change the game and change the narrative and... It's only my responsibility. It is my responsibility. But then to your point, how do you ensure that the game doesn't change you? Because after being, I can't imagine what you went through in the early days. Yeah, change me. It's got a fight on its hands. We have to ask ourselves some tough questions, Kenshin. What do you stand for? What's your purpose? You know, when I was younger, I was more ambitious than just about anyone you could meet. Did I make sacrifices? Did I make tough calls? Did I miss out on stuff? All the above. But I'm not sure I ever really compromised who I really was. Really. Did we have chameleons? Yes. Otherwise that door ain't open. And I knew if I got through the door I could help others, I could make a difference. So one of us had to get through that door. And do you know something? Who's going to be me? No door is locked tight enough. We're going to climb over it, climb under it. Now, the people I'm coaching and mentoring, they don't see that, thank God. They don't feel that. But I can tell you, we have to kick that door down. Does it make you bitter? No. It was of a moment. It was of a time. So while I stood in front of these guys, they're telling me that they were changed by the game. They still listened to us. I was still relevant. I'm still mentoring a bunch of them now. That's important. That's vital. Have we all, have, are any of us immune to being changed by the game? No. But have some people around you who are to give you some critical feedback. Push you back into your seat. Slap you up every now and again. Just so you know that, hang on a minute. Just saying. So, an important thing for our listeners. I've never seen anyone achieve their full potential without the intervention of a mentor. Some research came out of Harvard last year. Seminal research. It said mentors get a 16% career acceleration for a mentoring relationship. Mentees get a 16% career acceleration. Mentors get a 53%. Wow. Now, this will tell my life story better than most.
I found my mentors. They gave me the license to succeed. When I was rough, unaware, crude, unsophisticated, underprepared, they showed me how. They literally showed me how. And I learned very quickly. Where I developed most was not from the mentoring, but being the mentor. Having people who I could mentor, who didn't come from the same background. They weren't from the rarefied atmosphere of the executive suite or the boardroom. They had no idea what it was like to be middle class. They didn't understand the circles I was privileged to move in. Now, I was having to do First thing, I didn't force them to change their language. I needed to change my language to enable them to understand. I needed to create the safe space where they felt they could speak up, where they could speak out, where they could be their authentic selves. I need to listen, learn to listen intentionally, listen to what's being said and listen to what's not being said. I needed to hone my emotional intelligence so I could pick up on the vibe they were creating without waiting for the words or for it to be written. I needed to know when they needed help, when they needed a firm hand, where they needed nothing but support. It changed me as a leader. It made me so much a better. I wasn't now just mimicking those who were successful before me. I was forming my own brand. And it was going to be different. It was going to have my fingerprints on. It was going to have my voice on. I couldn't do that when I was 18, 19. I didn't know from my elbow. And no doubt, I know many different environments. And that mentoring those people who are like me and those who aren't like me, those who come from a similar background who come from a different background, those who worship like me, those who love like me, and those who don't love like me and don't worship like me, has made me such a different, more flexible leader and has enhanced everything I do. So the less amount of this, go find yourself a mentor and go be a mentor. Both grows you. That is a valuable lesson. And the stats and the research behind that, like you just shared, kind of prove it. And I guess it's super important, given the way you just kind of described it, of having that mentality and that mindset, because it comes down to who you are as a person. You're not just here to work, you're also here, if you choose to, to make a difference and to pull the people up and you learn, because it's always a two-way relationship. One of the things that I learned about you, which is quite interesting, even when you, you talked about working at Marks and Spencers, you were there for 10 years. We had like nine roles in that period of time. And I was like, nine jobs in 10 years? Like, <laughs> how did you manage to, to do that? It's, it's interesting because if we look at, when I joined there, people in, some people in Samara for 15, 20, 20 folks, we won't see that. We will not see that anymore. Yeah, where the average age of service was 15, 20s. Some of the banks I'm working with still have that. But in the main, they're not seeing that. What we could, there's a mythical thing called the business life cycle. Yep. When I first started because it took 10 years for business to churn itself. Then we fell to five years with the advent of technology. Today's 18 months. How long do you need to be in the same role when your business is churning every 18 months? We've got a generation that after three years, they are, after 18 months, they're bored. But I don't think we need those long levels of secure service. In fact, I see something different now. With the executive teams I'm coaching, we're pushing them to refresh, change people every 18 months, two years, get a fresh pair of eyes, we don't need 10 years service. Ten, what you learned 10 years ago is obsolescent to me, if not irrelevant to me. I don't care whether you're an architect, engineer, space cadet. I don't care what industry you're on. 10 years ago is not the way things have been wrapped. What price experience? I'd put it to you, experience is completely overrated today. Give me capability. 
give me someone who can learn quickly, can adapt quickly. The illiterate of the 21st century won't be those who can't read and write. It'll be those who can't learn, unlearn, relearn. Learn, unlearn, relearn. But when performance cycles are still pegged to the traditional 12-month cycle, some clients I just called recently, they were talking about the fact that their um, conversations with particular clients was like 18 months, two years, but they get judged on the first on 12 months. And the effort that they put in is not measured. And they were very, very frustrated about it. Because like, look at all the things I've done. I've got the receipts, the backup to show them actually working. We're doing stuff where it takes a while. But yeah, we get evaluated in a 12-month cycle. And let's change the game. Let's change the game. For years and years and years, every performance appraisal I ever had spent five minutes, if that, talking about my strengths. Okay. The rest of the time was a huge monologue about my limitations. And I'm sure many other people share the same thing. And at the end of my performance appraisal, we'd have a personal development plan that was absolutely fixated, if not obsessed, with the things I wasn't so good at. So the objective is, the things I'm useless at, not good at, which I'm not that interested in, to spend the next 12 months focusing on taking something from disastrous to mediocre. No. When I went to Pepsi, they did something completely different. The chief executives talk about spikes. The things you're fantastic at. He said, Renee, what are you great at? What are you great at? His job was to fashion me a role to play to my strengths. <laughs> so my last book, Spike, was all about this. Change the game. Don't focus on war limitations whatsoever. Leave them alone. They're not changing. There's a virtual circle. The things I tend to be really good at, the things I tend to enjoy doing. The things I tend to enjoy doing are the things I tend to be really good at. Give me a 5% increase in something that you're brilliant at or a 5% increase in something you're useless at, which no one still notices because you're still useless. Be Olympian standard. That's your career accelerator. That's how you get noticed. What did you buy in limitations? Work in a team. Let someone who's good at those things pick those up. Everyone is brilliant at something. No one's brilliant at everything. The team can be brilliant. Football teams have been doing it for years. Rugby teams have been doing it for years. I remember this. <laughs> I went for an interview way back. And they asked that same question in the interview. So what are your strengths and weaknesses? I was like, these are my strengths. In terms of my weaknesses, I believe in surrounding myself with people who will help me pick that up. And my team will highlight that for me. And I think that's how you actually build people and, and grow. And they look at me like, what? <laughs> you know, surprised at my response. I'm like, that's how I've learned. Like you are going on my strengths and you, you work around people whose strengths are your limits. And that's how you kind of level up to, to get the productivity and the growth that organizations want. But I've found that sometimes it takes leaders thinking very differently in terms of get and understand that it's still not the standard so here's the big lesson that goes with that don't wait till you've joined the environment to realize it's the wrong environment be discerning about where you're going to work do their values match yours are they looking for someone who's your shape size attitude behavior mindset if they're not, don't go. No matter what the job title, no matter what the salary, it will end in tears. Don't just go where you're needed, go where you're wanted. I'll be where I've need, where I'll be needed, but not necessarily wanted. I've thrived when I've been wanted. How long did it take you to recognize that you were not wanted? Do you know, the thing is, as you become more senior, you see more quicker and you're more capable of dealing. But I've had those immediate conversations where I changed line manager. I felt equipped enough, confident enough to come and say to, I'm not going to thrive in this syndrome. It might be better either we go our separate ways or I find a different environment in the company. 
And I've, I learned when I was senior enough to be able to do that. Now I coach that. There is no point, so is it the best person for the job or is it the best person for the team? Mm-hmm. And we're still one obsession with, I'm going to get the best CFO I can get. I'm going to get the best engineer I can get. It might not work in your team. It might not work for you. Stop going obsessing around the best person for the job. Get the best person for the team. And the best person for your team and the best person for my team. They might both be called CFO, but one might get on famously with you and one I might want to strangle. That's just life. So back to our story. Through mentoring and being being a mentor, being a mentee, I found myself 10 years of master's experience and then the life-changing. Pepsi. They're looking for a board director. I knew it wasn't. I knew it couldn't. I knew I I wasn't the best merchandise. I hadn't been to the best university. I didn't have the best degree. How many more times could I put myself down? I just sat there putting myself down. I'm not good enough. I'm the best thing to do. They offered me the job. They offered me the job. I'm going onto the board of Pepsi. I'm moving to purchase New York. It's going to be a completely different life. But I knew they'd got the wrong person. I knew I was an imposter. I was waiting to be found. And that's the last time in my life I've ever felt. On my very first day of working, it was a board meeting, as they all have it. I was bricking it. I'll be fouled out. I'd never been in a boardroom. I didn't know what a board director did. In those dark days, there's seven of us on the board from the men. I'm the only in one America. I didn't look like them. I didn't sound like them. I didn't. The doors opening was the chief executive, Larry. I could feel the sweat going down my neck. When he said, gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to our new portrait to Rene Carroll. Let me tell you a little bit about it. I'm about to faint. He had no notes. This was before Coop. Rene's parents left Gambria in the early 1960s to go to London. I was holding the tears back. I was holding the tears back. I'd never put that on a CV. I'd never put on an application for I never thought that was going to help me any. He carried it on. They came to London, talked through my education. No notes, no goo. He talked through infant school, primary school, high school. No notes, no goo. Do you know how he was making me feel? Wanted. For the first time in my life, not needed, but he went through my university. He nailed the degree. But the killer piece, nine jobs, ten years, he named them in chronological order. I nearly fainted. First time in my life, not my career, my life, someone was talking just about I wasn't mentioned in dispatches. It wasn't part of a team. He was talking about me. He'd memorized. He'd researched. What was this man's objectives? What was this man doing? I'm flying about a thousand feet high in the air. I'm Superman. Nothing can knock me. He picked up the imposter sitting next to me and booted him out the window. I was indestructible. I belonged. I belonged. Long before the word inclusion had ever been realised, I was included. There was an old TV franchise at the time called Mission Impossible. It's a pure old TV. My colleagues nicknamed me Mission Impossible. Because of that four or five minutes, 
Whatever Larry wanted doing, he came to me and I got it done. Failure was not an option. So they called me Mission Impossible. When it could be done, he gave it to me and I got it done. I got on famously. I thrived. He created an environment for me. I learnt from that moment, no matter who joins my team, I'm creating an environment for them. They're going to thrive. No one is going to join my environment and feel as though they couldn't flourish. I don't care what background. I don't care gender, faith. No one's going to feel the way I'd felt in other places that I had to leave my purse out of reception. No one's going to do that again. I had to go through it to learn, to know how demeaning it was, to know how challenging it was, to go home and my voice would change, to go home and laugh differently, to eat differently, to drink differently, to feel differently. No one ever understands or appreciates the power of inclusion until they've experienced exclusion. I'd lived exclusion. No one who worked for me was going to be excluded again. No. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. An Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. I was just saying that I, I could feel the impact. And maybe this is years ago, but I can feel the impact and effect just that one monologue focused on you taking the time to really know you understand your background like i said pre-google so do you his research so you have to do the work and just say that without reading notes and the impact that's had on you but then on what you've been able to go ahead and build and create and the multiply effect and i think that's the power of leadership isn't it that one impact on you had a multiplier effect on thousands of other people, not just the organization, but those you've coached and worked with all around the world. And that's what just really seeing someone, that's the power of inclusion, like you said. And I love I loved that phrase, the power of inclusion, because you don't know what it's like to be excluded. And I guess my question to you then, because I'm listening to you talk, what was the cost for you, I guess, up until that point, of you carrying and being excluded? What was the cost of you going home and recognizing the different speech patterns and the way you've had to show up? What was that like? Worthwhile. Because I have, others don't have to. So when you said to, when I said to you, the game changer changed by the game. It's never gonna be me. Not even close to me. Larry was white, middle-class, West Coast American. We could not have been more different. And Protestant, hard-working Republican voter. Many would say, you got nothing in common with him. We had our humanity. We had our humility. He told me about it. We need to refine our views. Stop talking about what makes us different. Embrace where we're sitting. He wanted me. Do you know how that changed me? He came and found He invited me. He looked after me. He stretched me. He challenged me. So much so, I knew how to do that for her. I just knew how wonderful it felt. If you belong, he made me feel I was part of his team, an essential part, or maybe the essential part of his team. I was impregnable. 
I did three and a half years. I signed and work at six o'clock every day. I left at night. If I'd stayed another three months, I'd have a court. I've never worked. But I loved him. He was as tough as tough. I spent time in America and in the UK, most of the time proving that we could. I felt the burden of expectancy and it was liberating. I felt the pressure of not being able to fail, liberating. I felt the pressure of first, first one, two, first, liberating, liberating. No fear, no blame, no guilt, no shame. Told you. It's the Barack Obama court. We are the ones we've been waiting for. And next you'll be our age. We are the ones we've been waiting for. So my parents, we are the ones. For my kids, we are the ones. Look no further. We have brought chapters. How do you know when it's time to move on? The best leaders always know when to move on. Nelson Mandela, at the peak of his powers after four years, if only other African presidents, presidents could take a lesson, <laughs> he left my office. All leaders need to learn when to move on. I would say maybe one of the toughest and most important things I do when I'm coaching people at the top of the company is to have that conversation. It might just be time. It might just be time. I hope I have, I've not waited anywhere long enough to have for someone to come and have the quiet chat with me. It might be time to move. That's, that's a level of self-awareness though, isn't it? Well, there's another thing that does it. If you're Forever coaching your successes, then don't overstay your, your need or your work. And for me, it's never about leaving, it's where you're going to. It's never walking away, it's walking towards. I like to think there's something that has got my eye, got my heart, got my energy, and I'm moving towards it. So you never feel that I'm moving away. You feel I'm moving on. And I'm always hungry for the next challenge. And if you make it not about you, you take even more credit from the person who takes over and does it better, does it differently, does more. And if they're the right people, they know that you've given them an opportunity, you've given them a platform. But be prepared, they're going to do differently and better. Fabulous. So what is the next challenge for Rene? So at the moment, I'm writing another book. Decided that Brexit was such a confrontation to everything I believe. For years and years and years, Britain has always embraced difference. I mean the best at it. Best nation in Europe by far. Better than the Americans. Better than the Africans. Better than the Asians. It's just embrace difference. And every now and again, something comes to challenge. And we saw it with the race issues in the early 60s. We saw it when it needed the Race Relations Act. It needed Brexit. Was the covert sign of racism. And this nonsense about patron, give us, give us our sovereignty back was a thin code for xenophobia. And some of the pathetic government practitioners at the moment who peddle cruelty, nastiness and division. No matter what ethnicity they are. Many of those have never seriously suffered exclusion. And they don't speak for me. We have to find our voice. So I decided to write a book, an optimistic book about race in the UK.
I'm not going to pull any punches. In fact, when I finish with you, I'm reviewing it all for the first time. Yeah. And really interesting. So about at about the time of George Floyd, I put together. I'm old enough and ugly for now. I'm well informed enough to write a tough book around race. I went to. I know the publishing world. I've published books for. We're in a publishing world, and I said, you know, I've got some tough things to say, but it's going to be really optimistic. Um, and what the feedback came was, we're not sure we need an optimistic book about race. Can't you give us something a little bit seamier? Something a bit angry? Something hard-hitting? You've got many of those. Yeah, but they sell really well. I said, well, I've got a few that things could be even better in the future. I'm not sure about I was stunned. We may be more determined to write the And I've seen some of the worst of the worst. But I've also experienced some of the best of the best. And we need that balancing factor. And far too many of the books I found about race in the UK were bleak. They were damning. And halfway through, I'd be looking to slash my wrists, you know, and that, that's not the sort of book I wanted my, the people I mentor and my children to, to read. Understand when making a difference, we're going to make a bigger difference. I wanted to give them the platform, the permission, the vision to be who they want and fulfill their potential. And the troubles of 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, we need to contextualise. I really do. I was flying in from Johannesburg recently. And um, I'm walking up the plane, up to the plane, and two black guys sort of confronted and said, um, economy's over there. This is 2023. And the only thing is, maybe 10, 15 years ago, they would have got the sharp end of my tape, not. I just laughed. I just couldn't believe this. I laughed. And they said, what are you laughing at? Then... British Airways student was coming up the jetty. I've been driving to Johannesburg for 25 years. Everyone in the British Airways lounge knows me. He said, Mr. Carroll, how are you? They stood to the side. I said, I'm really well. I said, I think your colleagues need a little bit of help. He, he, he gauged the situation in seconds. Mr. Carroll, let me walk you to your seat. A few years ago, that I'd have, I'd have handled that differently. Today, I've learnt that battle is going to be had by people of better equipment. We'll be given a big, bigger platform. And the book I want to write is: let's fight the right battles. Some battles should be just beneath us. It's the big stuff. We got a cabinet here with some people in the cabinet who just don't like anyone who's different. We need to stand up and be counted. It's all there's a battle. Braverman, Sunak, Badenoch. I don't know about you, but they don't speak for me. They don't speak for me. And it's time we found our voice and our vote. These are insidious types. I'm not sure what brings out the level of hatred, cruelty, anger. I, I, I just don't understand. Has no place in government here. And we need to ensure that never happens. Do you ever, I always spoke about this, the style that talks about being sort of a halt, but. You ever look at the landscape and think the political landscape in particular, it seems to be getting worse, not better. We've had Brexit, 
you got you, you got government there that doesn't change it. I dispute that. I remember where we came from. My father listened to Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. Let's remember that. It's true. Things are bad, but they're not that bad. We've got to mobilize, we've got to energize, we've got to find our leaders. Find our leaders that speak for us, about us, in an informed way, in an intelligent way, in a caring way. We have that opportunity. We have some of them, we don't have enough. The tragedy we're seeing today is when I was younger, the best of the best at university wanted to go into politics. That's the last place they want to go. The role models aren't there. They see no reason to be there, but we need them to be there. But how do you convince them to go there? Because like you said, the role models aren't there. It seems a lot harder and tougher. So how do you begin to teach them? Purpose and cause. We need leaders. I, I, I'm lucky enough to travel Africa on a regular basis. In? I've been lucky enough to coach heads of business, heads of state. I'm lucky enough to do the Caribbean. I coached Andrew Holness, Prime Minister of Jamaica, before the previous election. We just don't have enough calibre leadership. Talent's no longer our issue. We've got talent. We've got the talent coming out of our ears. Whereas talented as anyone, that, that, that battle's been won. The battle is now leadership. In business, in the public sector, in the trade unions, in academia, in government. It's just leadership. You know, I, I ran a session for Marsh McLennan, the 80,000 strong, 150-year-old American insurance company. They had um, a black leadership group. They had they've never had any black African-American executives, and I was leading this cohort of 40 that they're going to try and grow their own. I ran a session about soft skills leadership, and it was silent. It was on Zoom. There was 40 people. But I was saying to them, you know, you're not going to break through into the executive suite just on your hard skill. Hard work. Yep. Not just your qualifications, not just management. It's going to take vision, people, teams, culture, purpose, EQ. Not like software, not hardware. Silence. The one of the guys put their hand up, but one of the women put their hand up, just, really, when things are going well, people will listen to you about your software, your emotional intelligence, your soft skills. When it gets tough here in America, what we've learned is they can't take our qualifications away. It hurts. And the way she said it with tears in her eyes, they, they can take everything else where they can't take our qualifications. So we stay here with our qualifications. And we hear you limiting our ability to get to the top, but knowing that we can't be fired. I said to him, I'm appealing to your courage. Swim away from the safety of your qualifications. Provide us with the leadership we need for tomorrow. In the next nine months that I worked with them, eight women were promoted. No guys. The guys stayed with this in the safety of the qualification. And you know the lesson we learned from this? If you're bold, you might fail. If you're not bold, you will fail. Time to be bold. Time to be bold. And all you've done with uh, amazing leaders, companies, world leaders, all around the world that you've worked with, are there particular moments of that you're both proud of and have been your biggest lessons for you? I'll share a story with you. True story. I was working with Barclays Africa. I was coaching Maria Ramos. She's chief executive of Barclays Africa. She reported to Auntie Jenkins, chief executive of Barclays. I was coaching him as well. So this was it, and every now and again, I used to just think to myself, well, maybe I don't look like the person who's coaching the, who's looking up. But I call it coaching, it's not coach, really. It's, 
it's whatever I needed to be to enable them to succeed. Anyway, it was announced in Johannesburg that Nelson Mandela was coming down to visit. You used to imagine. It was announced. I happened to be in the... Well, I ensured I was in the building for this visit. He'd left public life, but he was coming in. Maria, her other half is Trevor Manuel, who was the effectively the treasurer, the chancellor for the ANC. He had a great connection. And it was announced that Mandela's coming at nine o'clock, leaving at 11. 8.30, I'm outside, taking him there. There's some cleaners, there's security, there's the wardens. Half past eight, a car points. Out comes Mandela. The car drives up. He doesn't walk into the building. He walks round the courtyard. And he speaks to everyone in the courtyard. Cleaner, security, warden. Speaks to everyone. Five to nine, the car comes back. He gets in the car. Nine o'clock, the car pulls up. He's escorted in for two hours. 11 o'clock, he gets in the car and leaves. Five past 11, the car comes back. He comes out. He goes and talks to all those people in the courtyard again. Gets in the car and drives in. Throughout the building, the story went something like this. When he came back, he remembered our first names. He remembered all of our first names when he spoke to us. For the next few months, no one talked about what happened inside the building. The only story of Mandela that counted was he spoke to the everyday people and he remembered their names. What lesson did that give all of us? You want to know what leadership is? That is leadership. That is leadership. And he knew when to leave. That's a, <laughs> it's a powerful and sobering lesson, actually, because I begin to then think around how we've seen leadership done right now. And if I remember, there was a CEO who spoke to a while ago, and you mentioned during the pandemic when people were slowly getting back into the office, one of the things that he loved the most was being able to go around to the few people who were in the building and speak to them and how much he missed that. And I asked him a question, why don't you do that often? He goes, because when it's a normal day office running, I'm just too busy. And I lose touch and connection with those who are in my organization, those who I did want to do, because it was a global organization. When I listen to you then describe someone like Mandela and that impact or the impact that Lydia had on you back in um, when you became the board director at PepsiCo. Is there something missing now with leaders because we're so busy, you got so many things to do that you can't have that close connection with your people or is that just an excuse? So two, two comments here. To... Everyone can be a leader if they choose to be. It's not management, it's not skills. There's no university on the planet today that that has a degree in leadership, it's all management. Leadership is not a set of tasks, you can't be too busy. Leadership is a mindset, it's an attitude. It's not a job title, it's not a rank, it's not a position, it's an attitude. Once you've got it, once you decide to become a leader, no one can take it away from you. You want to decide to be that leader. It's EQ, it's not IQ. Vision people, teams, culture. Vision people, teams, culture. It's the software. Let me give you a story to bring this up. The base level of leadership, the base level, is your ability to influence and persuade others. It's your ability to influence and persuade others. When they don't want to, when they don't think it's for them, when they're far too busy, you can persuade and influence to come and do what you want them to do. That's the lead out. Well, the regional leader hasn't been to this particular city for three years because of the pandemic. 
they're coming. They want a social evening so they can meet everyone again. They haven't seen everyone for three years. David is given the task of organising a social evening. He decides to have a pizza evening. In a good local pizza place, and he invites everyone. Originally, it comes down for the evening. Unfortunately, there's hardly anyone there. It's a bit of a disaster. Nobody's turned up. He says, never mind, I'm coming in next month, let's do it again. He comes next month. It's a social evening, it's a pizza evening. But this time, Sally organises it. When he turns up, absolutely everyone is there. Even those who are on holiday came in. Even those who live far away came in. Those who don't like pizza came in. Why? How? Sally knows how to influence and persuade. She worked on absolutely everyone with everyone to turn up. It's what leaders do. It's not your job title, it's not your authority, it's not your cane, not your medals. It's your ability to influence and persuade. If you start there, you won't go far wrong. Far too many of the leaders I see, and the potential leaders I see, want to show off their intellect, want to show off their qualifications, want to want to show off their status. All that is irrelevant. My Mandela story. When he went round and remembered everyone's name, they would do anything for him. My Larry story. There was nothing I would not do for them. You make people feel part of something special, they'll follow you. So the question I get asked more than any other, a leader's born or a leader's made? I say neither. Leaders failed. Leaders have failed. They're there, there are many of them around. Let's go find them. Let's enable them. Let's encourage them. Let's sponsor them. Let's coach them, let's mentor them. They're out there. They may not look like me, they may not sound like me. They may not behave like me. We still need them. They are really relevant. And we've got to break out of this that they got to look like us. They've got to come out of the same experience. It would be great if they supported Chelsea. But... <laughs> wow. You left me there. The world is a little bit wider than that. We need the right leaders in the right places. Let's not make the same mistake that they need to be just like us to succeed. That's what we suffer from. Let's not bring that suffering back. They don't need to look just like me. They need to believe in me and believe in us. On that note, I think it's a perfect way to end what has been enlightening, insightful, encouraging. And a phrase that you use, which I always use as well, when you talk about standing in the shoulders of giants and those who have gone before you, is something that I really resonate with because it's for people like you who've made that opening allows people like me to do what we do right now. So I am always very grateful and appreciative of that. But also it's also a great reminder there are times when you feel like, oh my gosh, things are so hard. And you listen to me like, actually, for those who've gone before you, they can tell you a lot more around how things were a lot harder. So things have improved, things are getting better. It might not feel like it, but like you said, we're, we're planting seeds and those seeds are not, we don't plant and harvest in the same season. So we're just planting seeds and doing our part and it will become down for other spirits to harvest just like I can harvest for what you did and other generations will be able to keep on flowing all the way through as well. So I definitely appreciate it. We have a fabulous story. And remember, optimism is a force multiple. Who wants to work for the pessimist? No one. No one. And the final word for all of our, our listeners is you need to be that leader. You want to be that leader. Sometimes... We get a bit lost, not sure what to do. Just be the leader you want to follow. And be the leader you want to follow. You won't go from wrong. This is Everyday Leadership. We'll see you next week.
while you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. You know, when your side hustle overtakes your, your day job, that's when you let go. In the past, I have I wasn't so wise to you know, and actually the first time I let go of my of my day job to go fully into my side hustle, my CV business was probably about um, 10, 12 years ago, something like that, right? And at the time I was like, I was thinking, the CV business is doing quite well. It wasn't overtaking my day job income just yet. But I said to myself and to my husband at the time, I was like, listen, imagine I'm getting all this done on a part-time few hours that I'm spending on this business. Imagine what would happen if I went full-time. 